Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming along this, this evening. Welcome to uh, this uh, session on the LSE's Beverage 2, um, our evening's part of that festival. My name's David Marston. I'm in the Employment Relations and Human Resource Group in the Management Department. I'm delighted to uh, present to you this evening our fellow panellists, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Woodcock, who's an LSE fellow, but alas, we're about to lose him to Oxford. Um, but hopefully that's not too far away, and we'll see plenty of you, uh, and also hear more about your research as it develops. I'd like to introduce um, Rebecca Campbell, who's one of our doctoral researchers, and um, also a, a graduate teacher within our, within our group. And finally, um, uh, Ruth uh, Rainey, who's one of our uh, LSE fellows and is also doing some really interesting work on French and British trade unions. Um, <clears throat> and we're all within the Department of Management. <clears throat> well, tonight we're coming together to reflect on the, um, I guess, what's really the 75th anniversary of the, of the beverage report. <clears throat> and <clears throat> as you know, the beverage report laid the foundations for the welfare state that was built in the... Um, built in Britain in the post-war years, and built to try and recover from the ravages of the Second World War, but also to recover from the, the Depression years, the 1930s, which had also left very deep scars on the social fabric in, in this country. <clears throat> Beveridge, as, as we all know, was built on the model of society of its time. Um, it sought to it build on... Uh, the nature of the social arrangements of the time. It built on the type of working families, building a pattern of social insurance and uh, risk sharing, but built very much on what's become regarded since then as the, the male breadwinner model of the family. Important in its day, but things have moved on and changed since then. Beveridge also built very much on the idea that we lived in an economy with relatively strong trade unions, and an economy in which the, the wage structure was uh, relatively fixed and determined, and customary wage differentials played a very important part in how people functioned within the labour market. These two things <clears throat> have been challenged by the developments of, of recent years. The technical change and the emergence of the platform or, or the gig economy have had a profound effect and are likely to continue to have a profound effect upon the assumptions on which Beveridge built. Um, the growing grey area in between employment and self-employment introduces a challenge for regulation of, of social insurance and, and of labour markets. It enables people, perhaps forces people, as we've seen in the recent judgments uh, about Uber and the, um, the status of people who work with Uber, whether they are employees or self-employed, and therefore whether they're covered by different types of social insurance arrangements and who should contribute and who doesn't, and what are the effects of contributing or not contributing upon the, the cost of employing people, um, which introduces an element of, of undercutting or potential undercutting <coughs> in terms of the employment cost of people, which was in many ways kept in check by the uh, 
strong presence of unions and a strong presence of the of a hierarchy of customary wage differentials in the um, earlier post-war years. <clears throat> Anyhow, these very important changes uh, are going to be explored in greater depth uh, this evening. And we're going to ask, first of all, uh, Jamie, who's been working very extensively on, on the gig economy, to bring us the benefits of his research and his reflections on how technology is changing work and how it's changing the, um, the, the, the equilibria which provided a platform of stability uh, for, for working people uh, within, within the economies. Uh, then we'll turn to Rebecca, who will be exploring another very important aspect of changing working conditions, and this is the, the balance between what we're paid for the work we do now and the, what we get paid after we've finished working. In other words, the, our current pay and our future pay and how the balance of this has been changing. And as I said earlier, this is something which is challenged very much in the grey area between employment and self-employment, which the um, gig economy has opened up. And then finally we come to, to Ruth uh, to draw on her work on, on trade unions to ask what can trade unions do about this and what effect they can have to uh, promote the benefits for working people and working families in our economies. Um, now, the format for this evening is that we start with the presentations from our, our three colleagues here, and then we open, each will speak for about ten minutes, and then we open up for, for question and answers after that. Um, I, I would ask you to please ask questions rather than make speeches from the floor. Um, I've been given strict instructions not to um, take speeches from the floor, but we're very welcome to have questions, uh, even if these may require sometimes a bit of explanation as a prelude. Um, I'd also like to draw your attention to the fact that the uh, talk this evening is being, is being recorded, and you can also follow it on LSE's hashtag, uh, hashtag LSE Beverage, or hashtag LSE Festival, and um, this would be a, a way of following up with the discussion um, afterwards. So without taking any more time, I'd like to hand over first to, to Jamie um, and ask you to say, introduce your um, topic. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Um, so what I want to talk about today, so I do research predominantly on work uh, and predominantly on technology and work. So how technology is changing work and the kind of potential dystopian future of where work might go or the possibility for how work might be, might be better. Uh, and what I want to do in the short introduction is to tell a story. Uh, it's to tell a story about how work is changing. Uh, and I think on the eve of the, the 75th anniversary of the Beverage Report, this is a good time to reflect on, on work, to reflect on whether the changes that technology promised have happened or not to look at the kind of work that Beveridge would have been familiar with in 1942, and to think about whether we've reaped the benefits of technological change or whether something else has happened with work. And I think it's useful to talk about work. I, I mean, I do research on work, so of course I think it's useful to talk about work. But I also think it's an important topic for us to talk about tonight, because it's through work that we can understand the other factors that Beveridge was concerned with. Work is how we make and remake society every day. It's how we relate to many other features of society. It's how the welfare state is created and recreated. 
And it's also something that unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we spend the overwhelming majority of our life in. So it shapes us in quite profound ways. And the story that I want to tell is one of new kinds of work and changes in work that perhaps Beveridge wouldn't have been able to, to make sense of or to understand. And I think the biggest thing that I want to look at is the end of long-term tenured employment and the replacement of work with, with gigs, with fractured employment. The idea that you could compare career paths to gigs, to having a musical uh, event that you go to, that work would become a much more fractured thing. And that's really what I want to talk about and work up to talking about gig platforms themselves. And I want to give one example um, of when I finished my PhD, which was a couple of years ago, and I've since uh, worked at eight different universities, if I count the one I'm about to go to. And after I finished my PhD, I, had, uh, uh, I went and did a conference paper about the PhD, and I met a very esteemed employment relations professor. And he said, oh, wonderful, you finished your PhD. Where will you be taking up your lectureship to you know, base yourself to carry on your research for your long period of employment? And I kind of looked at him and I said, what on earth are you on about? You know, what do you mean, where am I taking up my lectureship? I work at three different universities at London at the same time. Most people I know haven't worked a contract longer than a year. You know, this isn't the reality of work anymore. And he kind of looked at me very shocked and said, you know, why has this happened? You know, I thought people took up a lectureship, you know, took on their students and, and, and kind of followed a career path like I did. And, you know, it's ironic in a sense that somebody who specialises in employment relations hadn't realised this. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps could have talked to some of the other people in the department. I won't say where it was. It wasn't here. Um, but it's to say that we can understand a lot of these changes in work by simply talking to other people around us. If you don't think that work is becoming more fractured, more precarious, more flexibilised, talk to some of the people who provide the services that you rely on. You know, whether it's the people delivering your food through Deliveroo, whether it's the Uber driver that might take you home this evening, we have a close relationship with lots of these kinds of work, and I think we, we can forget it in some ways, even if we specialise in employment relations. And so some of the changes that have happened are things like the rise of zero-hour contracts. You know, when this started to come to light, one of the astonishing things was how academics had massively underestimated how many people were on zero-hour contracts. Many people who were on these contracts didn't realise because they were just used to terrible contracts, didn't realise they were zero-hour. And this comes from a push since perhaps the changes of beverage to push power back into the hands of the employer and away from the hands of employees. So a shift in the balance of power in workplaces. <coughs> that you might only work for a short amount of time. That the large trade unions of the post-war period have not been re-established in service work. That many people don't have the same kinds of resources they might have had otherwise. And I want to give two examples that I think lead into the rise uh, of gig work platforms like Deliveroo and Uber. And the first is call centres. Call centres employ around a million people in the UK. A huge number of people work in uh, this kind of workplace. Many of them built within the same buildings as old coal mines or old factories. In the husks of old industrial buildings, call centres across the country have been set up. And so in a way, they almost mirror the replacement of factory and mining work with this kind of new technological work. 
why I think they're important in many ways is that it's in call centres that technological forms of surveillance and control were first introduced. So the idea that you could be timed at work to the second, that you wouldn't be able to take breaks, that control was taken away from the worker and put into the hands of technology and management. And I think the lessons from this kind of technological surveillance allowed platforms like Deliveroo and Uber to be established. The kinds of algorithmic management that you could be directed by computer programs, that you wouldn't have to have physical contact with your boss. The technology allowed these new forms of work organisation to come about. The second story that I want to introduce is one around outsourcing and cost-cutting. So many companies, public sector organisations, have tried to cut costs extensively. And in some cases, it's taken the form of outsourcing. So moving workers from being full employees to being employed through dodgy connections of outsourcing companies where it's not clear who the employer is. And ostensibly, this has been done to reduce costs. And again, in the university, we can see this very clearly. You know, we can see how the cleaning and catering staff, security guards in many places have been outsourced and had their conditions driven down, put on zero-hour contracts and so on. And so what I wanted to say uh, as part of this talk was to congratulate LSE, or rather to congratulate the outsourced workers at LSE on being brought back in-house, because I think it's a huge step forward to see those workers having proper contracts and better pay. But we still see this picture across universities in London, this attempt to drive down costs. And so I think when we take technology and driving down of costs together, we can see the basis of gig economy platforms. That these technologies allow you to have a huge outsourced workforce. So take Uber, for example. In the UK, Uber claimed to employ a small PR team, some software developers, some high-level managers but they claim not to own a single taxi or employ a single taxi driver. In London, it's estimated that 40,000, as Uber would call it, small, independent micro-businesses that choose to have a supplier arrangement with, with Uber exist. In reality, what this clearly is, is a large workforce who drive regularly for Uber. They have an employment relationship. But they use, like Deliveroo, a kind of bogus self-employment categorization. They say, no, these are not our employees. We don't owe them pensions, minimum wages, sick pay or holiday pay. We only pay them for the actual work that they do. Now, the reality of this is incredibly precarious, insecure work. And often for many people, it means earning below the minimum wage when you take into account costs and so on. And so I want to tell... One story of a participant. I've been doing ethnographic research with delivery drivers for two years now. And I want to tell you a story of uh, somebody who began as one of my students, um, not here when I was teaching somewhere else, who decided to work for Deliveroo. Now, he worked for Deliveroo, or rather, he was a self-employed independent contractor who uh, sold his services to Deliveroo. Uh, He, of course, had to pay a deposit, £150, for his uniform, which he had to wear when he worked. He could only deliver food for delivery. He couldn't pick and choose when, uh, when to, to deliver for other people. So in many ways, a formal employment relationship. He worked in a cafe. Uh, he worked in a bar as well. He, he had to have a number of jobs to, to be able to make ends meet in London. 
And one of the things that he said, I asked him, you know, what's the hardest thing about working for, for delivery? And he said, well, you know, I, I'm not able to, to meet, my, meet my costs. I'm not able to make enough money. I said, you know, is, that, is there anything else you want to talk about? He said, the hardest thing for me was thinking, how am I going to eat enough food in between my other jobs to be able to cycle around London delivering other people's food? So he would wake up late because he'd been working uh, a night shift and have to find some way to creatively eat enough calories in the short space of time before he moved to the next gig in order to then deliver other food to people who were choosing to outsource their own cooking. And I think that's a damning indictment of the future of work that's rapidly becoming the present. Is since the time of beverage, we had huge innovations in the welfare state, in employment relationships, in the growth of trade unions. All of these things are being stripped away at present. And so I think on the eve of the 75th anniversary, what we need to ask ourselves is, do we want the dystopian, Mad Max-like future of precarious work, of having to have enough calories to cycle around, or do we want something better? And I think the key to that is starting with work and seeing how people organise and resist in work to see that an alternative begins from there, unlike perhaps the large-scale analysis from, from a single expert. It begins from the struggle of workers in those precarious conditions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. I'd now like to pass to, on to Rebecca and or Marv. Great, thank you. So um, Jamie's talked very eloquently about precarious work, and I suppose I'm here to persuade you that precarious work will lead inevitably to a very precarious retirement. So um, many of you might know Keynes made a really fabulous prediction that by now we'd all be so rich that we'd be working 15 hours a week. Um, And I don't know about you, but I'm not working 15 hours a week. And it's a really lovely example of a prediction that that has flagrantly failed to come true. Um, Except I would argue that in one sense there is some truth in it. If you look at the entire course of our lives... We are working much less. It's just that this period of leisure is coming in one big lump when we're old at the end of our retirement. So we are all spending much longer, well, spending longer in education. We're also spending much longer in retirement. And the challenge for all of us is how we pay for this. So just to outline briefly what I wanted to say today, which is this is the Beverage Festival. So I thought I would start by first discussing Beverage's original vision for retirement, Um, arguably, I think his vision was a far more conservative one than people um, appreciate. So the the famous five great evils were want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and and idleness. And I think that inclusion of idleness is revealing. Um, So how does this all relate to work? Basically, saving for your old age has always been absolutely rooted to, to work, to the employment relationship. And, you know, as James described, if the traditional employment model is coming under some stress, then you can really expect retirement, the retirement model, to also come under some stress. Um, So, Beveridge's vision for retirement. He wanted the state pension as a safety net only. He wanted it to be fully funded, to provide a flat rate income for old age that just lifted people out of poverty. I think crucial for Beveridge was the idea that it should only provide poverty relief and there should be room and indeed people should be encouraged to save privately. So, um, And in particular, he had a really deep aversion to means testing, which he regarded as morally and functionally pernicious. 
So to explain that term a little bit, he thought it was functionally pernicious because if, if people's uh, pensions were means-tested, he thought it reduced the incentive for people to save privately. And there was also a moral element there. He thought we should be providing ourselves for our old age. And as David said, his vision was very much that of the male breadwinner model. Um, uh, you know, he, he regarded the ideal unit as the husband the wife, the children, all maintained by the income of the husband alone. And that's had some very difficult implications for women. So basically, the birth of our state pension system has been a model where the state restricted itself to poverty relief and private saving was expected to, uh, to provide for anything above um, subsistence. Um, in practice, this original model was never implemented. Apparently, it, it generated a flurry of alarm bordering on panic in the Treasury, um, and Keynes, who is a very strong supporter of Beveridge's plan, put the cost at a, uh, well, it's, it seems quite quaint now, the, the cost of the entire, um, of Beveridge's entire plan was £535 million. Um, to put that in context, that was about 60% of total central government expenditure in 1937, which was the last normal year before the war. So everyone was persuaded to try and make Keynes, uh, to make um, Beveridge see sense and scale back his proposals to something that was economically reasonable. So Beveridge reluctantly let go of this idea that the state pension should be set at poverty relief. Um, even that was too expensive for the Treasury. So from the start, um, the UK has had a, a state pension which required the poorest to rely on means testing. Um, the second big change was he had to let go of the idea that the pension was fully funded. Um, it was considered um, politically imperative to pay pensions immediately to the generations that had suffered the First World War, the Depression, and the Second World War. Um, so back to now. So since Beveridge, we've had 60 years where the poorest, as I said, have had to rely on means testing. And the UK government's kind of flirted with the idea of a more continental mo model where, where pensions more accurately reflect your incomes. But ultimately, um, everyone's been frightened off by the cost. Um, and last year, finally, I think Beveridge might be surprised by how long it took, but finally we do now have a model that's very closely based on Beveridge's um, initial vision. We now have a flat-rate state pension that just lifts people out of poverty um, and it's explicitly designed to reduce the need for means testing um, and um, to encourage private saving. Um, the only difference really is that it's not funded. Um, so how do we fund the gap? So the state's providing poverty relief. How do we fund the gap between poverty relief and perhaps a more, uh, you, know, um, you know, aspirational retirement? Um, well, we have... <coughs> That, that gap is expected to be paid by uh, occupational pensions and auto-enrolment has been introduced to try and spread, uh, to try and spread access to occupational pensions. Um, so I think for the 21st century, the problem isn't really keeping people out of poverty in retirement, um, but really it's satisfying middle-class aspirations for something a little bit more than the £8,500 a year that the state pension um, currently uh, provides you not very generously. Um, so I think the question for today is, is Beveridge's vision for retirement that we have now finally enacted, um, for good or bad, is it fit for a world where the structure of employment is so radically changing? And, um, and here's where I want to talk about the growth of self-employment in particular. It's not the only change, but it's, you know, I've only got 10 minutes, so I'm going to focus on that. So 
despite all the talk about the uberisation of employment, um, I think it's worth saying that the traditional full-time model still is the most prevalent model. I mean, about 60% of employment, um, total employment, is still full-time um, employment with a traditional employer. However, there has been a huge growth in self-employment and atypical employment. And I think you have to think, uh, are we exaggerating this or is this the canary in the coal mine? Is this, you know, you know, the potential, there are some potential problems with the growth in self-employment and is this um, leading us into a future where we don't want to go? And I think there are, I mean, there are some benefits to self-employment. I've been self-employed, I really like being self-employed, but generally self-employment is much worse paid than employment and lots of people don't enjoy it. Um, so I think there's two big problems about the growth in self-employment. One is the cost that it has to the individual, and one is the cost that it has to the state. So the cost to the individual, I think, are, are, are perhaps more obvious. The self-employed, I'm, I'm talking entirely about the costs in terms of pensions. Um, the self-employed are just not saving for their pensions. So I think the Resolution Foundation... Um, found that as few as 27% of the self-employed are saving at all for their pensions. They don't have employers, so they're not getting in auto-enrolled, um, so they're losing out on an employer contribution, a tax contribution, and perhaps more importantly, the nudge to get them into saving. Um, the second cost is the cost to society, and I think this is arguably the more important cost, um, because the self-employed, um, well, to put it bluntly, they're just paying much less tax. Um, and now I have to apologise. If it's bad enough listening to me talk about pensions, I now need to talk to you about national insurance. <laughs> so I, I, I think most people in this room would have a very clear idea about tax rates and what income tax, what the income tax rates were. But um, I, I, I put your hand up if anyone has the has any idea about what national, what employer national insurance rates are. And you're not allowed to put your hand up if it's your job. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, does anyone have any idea of what employee national insurance rates are? Yeah, okay. Is it your job? Okay, well. <laughs> okay, so yeah, yeah, it's your job. Um, so basically, if you, are, if you are an employee, you will be paying national insurance of 12% on your earnings, and your employer will be paying a further 13.8% on your earnings. If you are self-employed, you will be paying 9% on your earnings, and there is no employer, so the state is, no, is missing this 13.8% this chunk of tax. And sorry, that was a horrible set of numbers. So to make it more concrete, someone on average earnings of 28000 they're, uh, they're going to be paying, if they're an employee, they're going to be paying about seven, just over £7,000 in tax. If they're self-employed, they're going to be paying about £5,000 in tax. And so that gap is hugely advantageous to any employer that can structure its business model around self-employment. I mean, that was the kind of basically one of the key messages of the recent Taylor report. It's a huge incentive for employers to structure their businesses around the self-employment model. If I was setting up a business today, I would... There's absolutely no doubt I would try, as, you know, I would try very hard to use the self-employment model. It's just simply so much cheaper. So I think we do need to ask to what extent the government wants to actively encourage firms to move people 
into self-employment. So I'm going to wrap up now. Um, I think we're here to talk about the future of work. And I, really, it goes without saying that none of us actually has a clue about how work's going to change in the future. Um, I just wanted to make three points. The UK, compared to most other countries, places an unusually large emphasis um, on the in- or burden on the individual to plan for themselves for their retirement. Um, the division of responsibility between you know, the state and the market, the state's playing really a very small role in our retirements. Um, the second point I wanted to make that those people who are on atypical or self-employed relationships are really very vulnerable when it comes to their retirement. Precarious work will lead to precarious and, well, impoverished retirements. Um, And the third point I want to make is that the tax system currently provides a huge incentive for that to happen. Um, So, thank you. Thank you very much. I'd now like to pass the word over to Ruth and talking about um, what unions can do. Okay, well, um, I think my colleagues have covered pretty much the changing dynamics very well here. What I'm going to talk about is how trade unions have been affected by these and potential ways that they might combat um, or the challenges that they, they face because of them. So in general, as vehicles for collective representation, trade unions have been affected and had difficulty in adjusting to the changing employment relationship, in particular because of the increasing levels of individualisation and fragmentation of employment contracts. This has made workers' interests more diverse and therefore more difficult to represent as a collective entity. Um, Trends such as outsourcing, like Jamie mentioned, and offshoring of non-core business activities have also further diminished (coughs) trade unions' uh, capacity to organise and represent the workforce as a collective entity. Um, Particularly in the production and manufacturing sectors, this has caused problems because um, this has typically been the blue-collar work that has been outsourced, and therefore it has eroded the union's traditional demographic. So acting alongside these dynamics has been a rise in employer-sponsored forms of representation. So these can have various different names depending on regions, countries, companies, but they typically have the word consultative or representative um, in their title and they can take the form of forums or or committees. So these have risen from a a kind of value in employers where they, they don't think that union voice is uh, needed um, in, in the workplace. So research has found that these non-union forms of representation provide only symbolic or superficial forms of employee voice, primarily because they're not independent from the employer. Studies have shown that workers in unionised workplaces are much more likely and have greater capacity to... Um, um, defend their rights and uh, improve their working conditions beyond the statutory minimum, much more so than those in non-unionised workplaces. Studies have also found, um, actually, that non-union mechanisms of workplace representation provide limited benefits for management in terms of productivity as well. Recent studies um, can also point to the 
helpful role of union representatives in resolving workplace disputes, much more so than non-union forms of representation. It seems that autonomy from management and experience in grievance handling um, means that union representatives are much more effective in resolving workplace disputes than their counterparts. So what I wanted to talk about today was if we continue down this path where trade unions continue to become weaker and lose membership, then what is the consequences for uh, future employees and the future of work? So if non-union forms of representation become the norm, we don't have any form of representation that is independent from management and therefore employers basically have free will to do whatever they want or make any changes that they want to. This is particularly concerning where employers are internationally mobile, making them more footloose, whereby they can move production and effectively what we call regime shop for the cheapest location in which to operate. So this type of employer practice is effectively sponsoring a race to, to the bottom in employment conditions worldwide. So, um, as I say, without this type of strong independent representation, then how do we stop employers from the unbridled maximisation of profits at the expense of workers' interests? So, given that unions, according to research, appear to be the most effective vehicle for representation. It's important to understand how they might overcome challenges, um, such as the fragmentation of the workforce and declining membership. Now, I don't really have time to go through all of the different strategies that we've observed. Thank you, David. Um, but one strategy I wanted to focus on was organising which entails the empowerment of workers and the attempts to instill a sense of activism in the workplace. So my research focuses on French trade unions, and I always elicit a smile from people whenever I tell people that my, my research is on France, um, because uh, the reputation is that they're very strong and uh, always on strike. But um, <laughs> what I observed in my research was that... Um, Yes, unions were able to mobilise en masse and this was effective in preventing factory closure in Renault in 2013. Mm. Um, they've also been able to put a stop to government reform in the past um, by mobilising workers en masse as well. What you might not know is that trade union density in France is actually very low, um, one of the lowest in the OECD at 8%. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about the sense of activism, even amongst non-union members as well. How do they get workers to mobilise en masse? Um, so to some extent, this sense of activism, it may be more apparent in sectors like the automobile industry, which have traditionally been unionised, but uh, and protect, potentially for the, the country of France. And I'm aware that Maxime is in the front row <laughs> and smiling at me. Um, <laughs> But um, we can learn a lesson from what I observed from my research in, in, in the French automobile industry regarding communication and engagement with the workforce. Um, so in, the, in, in Renault, unions are using a variety of different platforms in order to communicate and engage with their workers. Um, so anecdotally, since I joined LSE in September, I haven't heard anything from the union. I haven't been asked to join, I, 
I didn't know that there was a ballot taking place on the pensions um, unless I, I went and found it out myself. Whereas in France, every time unions have a meeting with management, which is often monthly and often more than that, they receive alerts, text alerts, they receive alerts via social media, they have people on the shop floor handing out leaflets that inform workers of the situation in the company. So this is one reflection on my research um, when I was asked to speak uh, tonight that I thought potentially we could learn from this. More presence and more engagement with the workforce, um, potentially on a personal basis, but also via different platforms, might be helpful. Um, another thing that I, I reflected on was that uh, unions in France are also not as demarcated along sectoral lines. So whereas here we might have an, a union that represent te represents teachers, a union that represents university lecturers, France has a number of different national confederations that does not categorise workers according to their profession. This is potentially a reason why they can elicit these large, larger numbers because there's potentially more of a sense of unity um, across the different sectors as well. So in terms of the UK movement, what we could learn from this is that to develop a sense of activism, potentially we, be, we need to work on our sense of unity as well um, by encouraging cross-sectoral um, relations between different unions, um, etc. So I just want to conclude by saying that I hope I've convinced you that trade unions are not outdated. They have a clear role in the future of work. Um, especially if we want to make sure that our, our employees are well represented and their, their voices heard. So we just need to look to see how we can instill this sense of activism that is apparent in other countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. We now have about 20 minutes for a question and answer. And we have a, a roving mic. Uh, so as this is being recorded, if you have a question, could you please speak, wait for the microphone to come so that... Uh, it, people who are outside the room can hear. Uh, I think, would you like to ask the first question? Um, and then, then you. Um, this question goes to the um, uh, first contributor, um, particularly perhaps. Um, how uh, does one overcome the uh, apparent approval um, in London, for instance, of uh, people... Um, who in the majority supported Uber and were quite upset um, when um, it was found out that um, perhaps um, Uber would be shut down in London. Um, people came out and said they liked Uber because it was cheaper, and um, apparently the me-first attitude um, prevailed. So again, the question is, um, how, how does one overcome this? In other words, we, we, we seem to be living in a culture where me first comes first. I want Uber. It serves me, and there's no wider um, consideration of this except for academics. Thank you. I'm sure many of us have met people with a similar view. Uh, Jamie, would you like to take a couple more? Maybe take a couple more questions. There's, um, there's one here, too, if you could... I spotted you first. Sorry. <clears throat> Let's just take three questions and then... I wanted to ask about um, sort of the two 
things I guess I thought that were going to be talked about but haven't, of the intersection of the polarisation of skills and then the potential for automating away a lot of the lower skilled jobs and that we might end up potentially with like a sort of two world system of the employed class, the unemployed class, the skills that can't be automated and, and even the Uber drivers will be gone one day. There's a question about the hollowing out of the middle in the skills, whether we're going to have lots of high-skilled and lots of low-skilled, but, but nobody in between. And what happens after that? Okay. Um, and there's another question, I think. Well, who's nearest to you? Uh, here, please. So my question actually uh, leads on from this, is the idea that the gig economy in reality, it's not all the same. You have people who are in high-end jobs that do gig economy <clears> and are in a completely different um, position to those people who do these jobs that are actually likely to be automated. Um, so the question is, like, what is the nature? Like, how do people fall into one of these two categories? Are these gig jobs going to be um, automated? And what happens with those that can't? Can we hear more about the, that type of gig economy, not just the lower end? So a question there about um, there being high-skilled and low-skilled areas in, in the gig economy and what are the implications of that. Maybe we could ask um, Jamie to... Anybody else wants to... Jamie is the best, please. Okay. So there's a couple of things there. Not anyway. um, so in terms of the, the support for the Uber <coughs> campaign, I mean, I spend a lot of time with, with Uber drivers, uh, both in the union in London, the IWGB, the United Private Hire Drivers branch, uh, and non-unionised Uber drivers. Um, I don't think not supporting Uber and not taking Uber is a solution to changing this kind of work. Whether we like it or not, Uber, I would say, employs, they would claim otherwise, 40,000 drivers in London. Taking away the license of the Uber drivers would mean the loss of 40,000 jobs in London. It's a huge number of people. I think what we have to say instead is how could Uber be made better? So how could people organise for better conditions? And the key thing at Uber, there are two key things. It's employment status, which the union is challenging in the courts at the moment, and it's currently going up to the Supreme Court, and it's pay. And I think if you take Uber, you should tip. You know, they don't pay enough, you should tip people. And you should talk to them about their conditions. The more people who know about the union, the stronger the chances of having a kind of Uber that is fair to the drivers. But ultimately, whatever we do, at some stage, they are going to try and automate away driving. And so I think we need to think about this in a broader sense of what happens to, people's, to people whose jobs are automated away. Um, when massive amounts of jobs are lost, the cost disproportionately falls on some people and not others. And in the UK, we have a huge example of this in the northwest and the northeast of England, of jobs that disappeared which were never replaced by anything that matched the conditions or the pay. And so I think we have to, to support people who are organising now at Uber, but also to think about what happens when automation becomes more of a reality. Um, but I have a slightly different view on automation. I think automating lots of jobs, to move on to the second question, is quite a difficult thing. Um, so high-skilled jobs are very difficult to automate. Um, low-skilled jobs, conventionally considered low-skilled jobs, tend to be very, very hard to automate away. Um, so there are lots of the skills that people find very natural can be very difficult to, to, to teach uh, to a computer program or whatever. And I think in the reality, most of the automation that's happening at the moment is supervisory and management roles are being automated out. So there are no managers at Deliveroo, for example. 
No one is employed to manage that workforce. It's, it's done algorithmically. And what's happening with automation is new kinds of low-paid jobs are being created. So when you go on Facebook and you think that the content has been moderated automatically, it's been farmed out to the Philippines and Indonesia with huge numbers of people clicking on horrible images all throughout the day to say that they shouldn't be on the Facebook platform. So automation creates new kinds of jobs as well. So I think the reality that many of us are going to end up with no employment, I think that sounds fantastic. Imagine what we could do if we didn't have to go to work every day, is not going to happen anytime soon. Instead, we'll get pushed into more uh, new kinds of jobs that we wouldn't have expected. Um, and then just to answer the third one, in terms of the gig economy, I think there are three kinds of work in the gig economy. There's location-specific work, taxi driving, food delivery, task rabbit, these kinds of things where people need to be in a location. Tends to be very low paid. Tends to use false self-employment categorization. So people aren't, they don't pay national insurance. Then there's another two kinds which are mediated online. So click work or micro work, which is very low paid. Skill, uh, tasks often last five seconds or so on. Most of that is training algorithms. So it's things like clicking on pictures of don't run over the baby, you know, don't drive into the, the, the tree or whatever it is. Things, human activity that's training algorithms to replace things like automated cars. And then more kind of online freelance. Um, the difficulty is some of these jobs, and in a sense consultancy and gig work has existed for a very long time, the tendency with these platforms is to massively drive wages down. So there are now 70 million people who have sought and gained employment online um, we now have, for the first time in human history, the majority of people in the world have access to the internet. And it means that wages are driven down. If things can be done cheaper elsewhere, competition drives wages down. And it's a huge challenge to think about how you organize workers in the global north, in the global south, on these platforms that claim not to be employers. And so the risk is that everybody loses out when we're not able to organize. So without trade unions, all of us will lose out. And what does a trade union on Upwork look like is a very, very difficult question. Okay, could we take some more questions then, please? Um, perhaps you two, and uh, one other question. Maybe you in the blue shirt. Hi, uh, really enjoyed the talk, thanks. Uh, when I was uh, working at one of my last jobs, um, I got told abuse of flexible working conditions is fraud, um, which was quite scary. It made me think um, how precarious work has maybe pushed us into a situation where um, breaking the rules at work has become maybe breaking the law because it's a contractually different situation. Um, or maybe not at that point yet, but I just wondered if anyone had any thoughts about the um, legal uh, situation which might change for workers, making them more exposed uh, because of the fact that they're um, individual self-employed uh, persons. I have a question with respect of what countries or nations play a role in defining the work conditions because we have a very mobile workforce both in, in all layers of income distribution and it becomes harder and harder to unionize if um, you work remotely or you can easily move from one country to another and there is this constant fear of you're competing with someone else working somewhere else for cheaper. How can you empathize with that person and unionize if um, you're, you pay your taxes differently? You work here and um, you're getting a pension here, but 
someone else like why would you have an interest in uh, someone else's salary somewhere else but at the same time it affects what you get and there is this sense of everyone is competing against each other you're driving wages down how can we overcome that like in term how can we create maybe international unions if that is a possible as a concept thank you and there's one question here and then yeah i'll try to be brief i just um i wanted i, I came to a talk here the other day on a similar topic and i was just wondering it seems like a lot of people who um study or who scholars are, are optimistic about the the slow rate of change and it seems like most of the students or most of the younger folks are less optimistic and um i'm just wondering why that might be and if you think that like you like i've been in southeast asia most of the last 10 years and where you see huge differences in the way it was even a few years ago you know things change so fast and people there are expecting things to change even faster in the future whereas here i think we don't see the pace of change quite in the same way but you see that you know now <coughs> code is writing code itself you know and uh, elon musk and these guys are quite pessimistic about the future and 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 how fast things might grow so my question is why do you think that there is that gap between kind of older folks or people who have who are around and and kind of the younger people who are coming up um are we just are we, are we feeling too much stress do you think it's uh, it's unneeded or do you think that there's a is there really need to worry about the the pace of things which which seems to be gaining um much faster than anyone predicted but thank you um maybe would ask either Ruth or Rebecca if you'd like to comment first on those questions because they do relate also to what you were saying about the way french unions were organizing and the way they were using technology to do it or you were also commenting on the way in which um the the pension rules encourage people to move towards more self-employment um and perhaps facilitating a race to the bottom um uh, and then we'll come back to Jamie after that I'm very happy to answer the question yeah. about the please ask answer, answer the questions you as you heard them as well oh no so i i would i would like to answer the second question uh-huh. if that's okay if you yeah, want yeah. if you want to go the first one which what? was this gentleman <clears throat> i'm going to take this question <laughs> about 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 yours is a hard question yeah yours is a hard question so we i'm going to ignore it um so on on optimism uh it's a really difficult one isn't it because i mean we're all in our little kind of bubble so in the, i'm i'm in a pensions bubble and in the pe- on in terms of pensions i am actually really optimistic i i think it's been i know it's common and perhaps it's good to always focus on what we've got wrong and what we need to do better but i actually think in terms of pensions it's one of the kind of the great triumphs of the 20th century is that basically most rich countries have moved to a point where you know if you look back at beverage time the majority of people were in abject poverty i mean abject poverty when they retired and yes you know retirement for some people might still be a struggle but the, the you know the change in fortune has been extraordinary so and i know that isn't really to address your question but i'm just talking about optimism the general generational issues i don't know i think it's always difficult being young 
I, you know, I think when I when I graduated and I and I went into a world and I didn't know where I was going to work or who I was going to work for, I certainly didn't kind of feel like there was this 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 world opening in front of me that was offering me fantastically secure jobs. I think just being young is is to kind of feel um, vulnerable. I, perhaps the only difference is, you know, I, I think the younger generation now has so many more options. The world is a much bigger pace. Everywhere, everyone's much more mobile. And options are great, but options also, you know, it's, it's more problematic the more you have to think about. You know, the wider your options, the more choice you have, the more difficult your choices are. Um, so, anyway, I, but I put myself down as an optimist. I think, we, um, I think the world is getting better and better and better. Is that generational? You're, you're, too, you're too young to be an optimist. Am I too, what? Am I too? <laughs> you're a long, way, you're a long way from I, retirement. I don't know. I think, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Perhaps I'm just at the sweet spot in the middle <laughs> before, I, before I've kind of gone over the curve into the downward slope. Yeah. Ruth? Um, well, to answer your question, I mean, that is actually the crux of the academic debate at the moment. There are things that exist that are called cross-border alliances between trade unions, and it's actually being facilitated by the rise of the multinational corporation and also the introduction of what are called European Works Councils. So these were um, meant to be forums for information exchange where um, trade unions could, could actually work together in order to counter the power of multinational companies. But... What actually, um, and there's an academic, um, Bob Hankey, who is uh, at LSE, he actually has looked into how unions are actually using these as a way of scoring points off one another and how they're using information about the other union in order to gain employment for their own localist interests. So you're completely right. Everyone does feel like they're competing against each other. Um, My research actually looks at unions at a local level in France, and uh, within Renault and um, Peugeot Citroën. And what's actually <coughs> happening there is that even within France, the set, different sites are competing with each other for production, um, where they have to undercut other sites or agree to, to work longer hours in order to be allocated um, production volumes and enough to keep them in jobs for the foreseeable future. So as yet... <laughs> that's a question that needs to be answered. How do we facilitate um, cross-border cooperation? So I'm hoping that my research, by seeing how unions at a local level um, can cooperate with each other, because if they can't even do that, then how are we ever going to get people from different national systems um, to, to do that as well? So. Thank you, Ruth. Jamie, don't do. So I'll take the hard, hard question. <laughs> I think it's a good question. So... Most work that's been created post uh, post Second World War, post the kind of post Fordism, essentially, kind of the new kinds of service work that are created, haven't had waves of unionisation. So these kind of workplaces have not had mass trade unionism, and that means that work becomes very individualised. So things are dealt with with an individual meeting with a manager, or are dealt with legalistically. So if you don't do something, you breach your flexible working pattern or whatever, you can be sued. Now, the employer, in many cases, would always love to deal with things like this. You individualise it and you deal with one worker. That puts that worker at a huge structural disadvantage. So then you feel like you're not going to you know, take more time off than you should or, or, or whatever you're doing when you're breaching things. And I think we have to be very, very careful about this legalisation 
no, that's probably the wrong way to put it, the overuse of, uh, uh, of law within employment because it is an attempt to shift the balance of power. So a very good example of that is trade union legislation that's been brought in in the last couple of years. So things like raising the amount of people you need in a ballot to be able to take part in industrial action, that you have to do paper ballots. You know, we never deal with things with paper ballots nowadays. You know, we should be able to vote online, but somehow when we vote in a strike, we have to use paper ballots. And so as an example, people might know there's a strike taking place today in 61 universities, of which LSE hasn't joined because they got 48% instead of 50% turnout. So don't worry, everybody didn't cross a picket line today. We're not on strike, even though some of us perhaps uh, would like to be on strike. But we need to challenge these things. Sorry, to make it clear, I do want to be on strike. Um, But we have to challenge these things collectively because we can't change work in the courts, but we can change it collectively. And just to say something very quickly about unionization, when we look at these things internationally, I think we have to start from the worker rather than from the union. So how do workers cooperate internationally when they are involved in struggling workplaces? And Amazon is a fantastic example of this. So across Europe, there's coordination between different groups of workers along Amazon's supply chain that shows that you can't organize at a single Amazon plant because it'll just be moved. And so you're starting to see networks of, of workers organizing across national boundaries because you can't, you can't do it otherwise. Um, and it's from there that transnational unions will develop, not from the point-scoring unions that we have to start from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Good. Well, thank you very much, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed this evening. And I'd like to thank our, our speakers, uh, Ruth Rainey, Rebecca Campbell, and Jamie. Thank you very much. Thank you.